1: She was a born storyteller at the age of three or four. Um, she would be observed holding a book in her hands, often upside down, and she would walk back and forth and make up and create a story. That her mother arranged for a play date with young friends. She would actually refuse them and insist that her mother play with him so that she could she could continue on making up.
2: That was Susan Whistler talking about young Edith Wharton the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for Literature, Wharton is the author of classics like The Age of Innocence and The House of Mirth. She created an unforgettable portrait of 19th century America and women's role in it. I'm Elaine Verveer and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Edith Wharton's books continue to sell widely, even a hundred years after their publication. And they've been the source for many movies, starring everyone from Betty Davis to Michelle Pfeiffer. But Wharton was more than a novelist. She was also a forward-looking designer of homes and gardens. And for her relief work during World War I, she was a hero to the French people. We got a fascinating insight into Wharton's life from Susan Whistler, the Executive Director of the Mount, the beautiful estate Wharton built in the Berkshire Mountains of Massachusetts. Listen and learn from Susan Whistler why Edith Wharton is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Gear. I'm speaking today to Susan Whistler, the Executive Director of the Mount, the Estate of Edith Wharton. And we're going to be speaking about Edith Wharton and her place in America's literary history and so much more. Susan, it is a wonderful pleasure to have you with us today. Well, Milan, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Edith Wharton wrote about the world of the wealthy during the Gilded Age, the late 1800s. She gave us memorable novels, including The Age of Innocence and The House of Mirth, She was the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize for Literature for the Age of Innocence. She was also a designer and a decorator, and her passion for houses and gardens uh, obviously comes out at the Mount uh, when one visits. What do you think she should be remembered for? How do you see her legacy? You have an intimate engagement with her almost every day as you're there at the Mount.
1: Well, Edith Wharton, I would say, is and should be probably best known for her enduring classics, uh, The House of Mirth, Ethan Frome, and also The Age of Innocence, which is probably her best known work. It's the one that won her the Pulitzer Prize when it was published in 1920, and it hit number one on the bestseller list again in 1993, following uh, Martin Scorsese's release of his film starring Michelle Pfeiffer and Daniel Day-Lewis, which is based on the novel. But... um, I would say even though she's mostly known as a novelist, her literary legacy is actually so much bigger. Um, She wrote across many genres, including short stories, it travel books, um, literary essays, and poetry. And her first well-known, and sort of, I would say, hit, was a book that was actually about interior design. Uh, It's called The Decoration of Houses. It was published in 1897, and it's still taught in design schools today. I think she also should be remembered for taking on subject matter that I would say even today might seem audacious. Uh, she, her books and her novels addressed issues ranging from euthanasia to war, um, to female sexual desire, um, especially that of older women. And I would say that she and her works, uh, defy any easy categorization, I I would say. And then of course there is, um, what I think she considered um, her most important creation, or one of her most important creations, and that is the estate that she designed and built in the Berkshires, the Mount. Um, And she was as proud of that as any of the literary work that she produced.
2: Just an exceptional legacy, uh, for sure. Now, you're the executive director of the Mount, her long-time estate, as you just mentioned, in the beautiful Berkshires. And you used to practice law in New York. What got you interested in Edith Warren and how did you come to head the mount? Well, I, I thank serendipity for, for my journey. (laughs) Um,
1: My last legal job was actually with a firm here in the Berkshires and um, the partner that I was closest with, unfortunately died of cancer while I was there. And it was, um, it was a, a big moment in my life, and it, I, I took that opportunity to step away from the law and decided I'd really actually rather spend more time outdoors. And I spent the next couple of years as a, a sort of itinerant tradesperson. I was a carpenter, I did landscaping, I did painting, um, just sort of odd jobs here and there. And, um, but I was growing tired of the, it was getting a little tiring, and I certainly wasn't making a lot of money. And a friend uh, notified me that there was an opening here at the Mount involved with operations. And I applied on the Labor Day. in I think I applied on a Friday in 2001 in September and started the following Monday. And uh, I fell in love with the property. And I have never looked back. And it's hard to believe that that was nearly 20 years ago.
2: It's an exceptional story. Uh, Serendipity, though it might be, in terms of how you got engaged. Uh, But I think the Mount is very fortunate, too, to have such an exceptional lawyer and committed uh, leader of that beautiful place. You mentioned um, at the outset some of Edith's great literary achievements, and she wrote so many years ago, and yet her books remain so popular today. Why do you think that's the case, and and what does she tell us about the wider culture in, in terms of her time and our time? Well,
1: when Wharton was at, at the peak of her career, uh, women's rights were uh, arguably expanding. Divorce was becoming more common. More women were entering the workforce. And, um, and then, of course, the 19th Amendment was ratified in
2: 1919.
1: And despite all of this seeming progress, a major theme in Wharton's work is how women's options remain constricted. Uh, marriage was often unsatisfactory. And, of course, women continued to be treated unequally. And I would say that is one theme that runs throughout her work that continues to resonate today. And another big theme was, I would say, the huge divide between the enormously wealthy, um, the one percenters perhaps, and the working class. So I don't think it's hard to draw parallels between her time and ours. And I think uh, the themes that she addresses in her works continue to be themes that we as individuals and as a society continue to struggle with. But I think perhaps the principal reason she remains popular is because she's just a wonderful writer. And she's got memorable characters, engaging plots, beautiful language, and I would say a clean, even muscular writing style. And so uh, her work is, has, has stood the test of time. And I think um, a century from now, we will still be talking about
2: it's, it's so interesting. And and those two themes that you mentioned are certainly very much with us today. Um, she lived between 1862 and 1937. What was happening then that had a great deal to say about shaping her and what she eventually would write about? Oh, that's a great question, Mohan. Um Well, Wharton
1: was born into the old money New York society. Uh Or, by way of example, on the US Census, her father listed his occupation as a gentleman of leisure. So, this was the world into which she was born. Um, Her family belonged to a class of people who loved art, but distrusted artists. And it was also a class that felt themselves under siege, particularly by the new money class. And because she was a bona fide member of this class, she knew it, she understood it, warts and all. She knew it intimately, and it provided her with terrific material for her writing. Um, She was also heavily influenced by European culture. Uh, As a child, Edith had spent much of her life in Europe, mainly in France, Germany, and Italy. And it was there that she developed both her gift for languages, but also a deep appreciation for beauty. Uh, She loved art, architecture, and literature. And this is where all of those passions were ignited. I would also say that she had an incredible intellectual curiosity, and that drove her to read just an extraordinary range of books, not just literature, but she also was fascinated by science and philosophy and religion. And um, her library here at the Mount actually includes multiple copies of of books by Darwin, um, whose works and theories were, of course, hotly debated in the day. so those were some of the forces in terms of events that shaped your life. I would say World War One was perhaps the most influential. Um, from 1914 to 1918, she was in was in France in Paris, and she devoted herself um, to creating a complex, really extensive network of charitable and humanitarian organizations that, that included um, workrooms for the unemployed, uh, convalescent homes for people with tuberculosis. Um, she created hostels for refugees and schools for children, and um, she also wrote extensively about the war. She was one of a handful of journalists that was actually allowed to uh, report from the front lines, and her work was so extensive that um, in 1916, she was actually awarded the French Legion of Honor. Um, and I would say mention one last thing that I would say was a, a big force on her life, um, during um, her lifetime, there were incredible social, uh, economic, and even technological changes. Um, so she went from a horse and buggy era to, to air travel. And I would say this progress affected her deeply and can be seen in her writing. And by the time she's in the 1920s, she was actually quite dismayed at what she saw as the commercialization of popular culture. Um, and she wrote about this in um, in her novels. So. In The Children, for example, she makes fun of Hollywood in the movie industry. In Hudson River Bracketed, she she goes after the publishing industry, and and specifically the Pulitzer Prize. And then in Twilight Sleep, which is one of her last novels, she turns her pen to skewer modern medicine and the wonder pills that were um, the rage of the day. She was
2: such an interesting and complicated personality, obviously. I wonder, listening to your description of her and what shaped her, it sounds like she could have done any number of things. Why did she become a writer? Oh, um,
1: well, she was born a writer. I think she, she had no choice but to become a writer. She was a born storyteller. So even before she could read, she writes in her memoir that she would engage in an exercise or an activity that she called making up. And so, you know, at the age of three or four, um, she would be, uh, observed holding a book in her hands, often upside down. And she would walk back and forth and make up and create a story, um, with the, her mother arranged for a play date with, um, uh, uh, uh young friends, but she would actually refuse them and insist that her mother play with him so that she could, she could continue on making up. So the storytelling piece came to her naturally. And I, and I think she was driven to write. Um, which is not to say that it was easy. Um, her family, I believe, was a, a, um, a little bit in awe of the sort of uh, natural and sort of driven nature of Edith to, to write, and they, they supported her as a young girl. In fact, um, Wharton's first book, first published book, um, was a book of poems that she wrote at the age of 16, and her mother actually uh, undertook Uh, the the private publication of that. So I think they were quite proud of her. But once she was um, a woman of a certain age where the expectations were that she was to to marry and settle down, um, uh, I I would say the tables turned for her. And um, uh, at the age of 21, she is engaged uh, to a young man. The engagement is broken for very complicated reasons. And the newspapers actually report that uh, the engagement was called off because Wharton was, quote, an ambitious authoress and too intellectual. And that was a huge humiliation for her. Um, and as she, even as she became, um, you know, critically in, and a, a critical and popular success, um, she was often not taken seriously as a writer. Uh, she was frequently dismissed as either just a pale imitation of Henry James, who was a good friend, or as someone whose works were trivial because they were only concerned with the rich. And this was despite her having often written stories with working-class protagonists. Um, I would say at least a third of her works deal with um, people who are not of the the wealthy class.
2: Sounds like some of the uh, criticisms that were lobbed against her continue in varying ways today against women. Uh, That uh, criticism of being just too intellectual strikes me as one. For sure, uh, and I just love that image that you painted of her as a child holding a book upside down uh, and storytelling as as she's pacing around. So I I think you're so right. It does sound so much like she was born to be a writer. Speaking of her work, The Age of Innocence celebrated its hundredth anniversary uh, last year. What's the story behind that book for listeners who are not familiar with it?
1: The Age of Innocence was written in 1920, after World War One, and um, after the death of many of Wharton's closest friends, including Henry James and Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and it is set uh, not in the 20s, but in the 1870s. And it is, I would say, both... Um, an homage to, and a critique of the society that she grew up in. Um, and it was a book that she didn't want to write. Uh, her previous book was a war, a war novel, and it had the misfortune of coming out just as the war was ending, and the public was basically sick of war stories. And, um, and, but she wanted to write another one, and her publisher said, no, we need another sort of House of Mirth-like uh, novel manners. And so she needed money. She, by that time, had purchased a couple of houses in France. And, um, and so she actually penned the House of Mirth in, I think, uh, a, a little less than a year. And um, in many ways, I would say it is the most autobiographical novel. And it involves three major characters. It's kind of a love triangle story. Uh, there's a, a, a gentleman, Newland Archer, and then there is um, the very mysterious and somewhat socially disgraced because she's divorced, Countess Ellen Olenska. And then there's May Wellen, the sort of perfect um, product of New York society woman whom Newland is uh, expected to wed. And um, uh, anyway, it's, a, it, it's, it's basically a love story. And it, but again, it is in many ways autobiographical um, and I'll just draw maybe uh, uh, attention to a, a couple of the, the reasons why I say this. Um, Ellen Olenska is probably the most obvious person based on Edith Wharton's character. Uh, Ellen and Edith were both very comfortable and felt at home in Europe, um, not just because they grew up there, but also because they were both very sophisticated women. They were equally at home with fashion and as well as art. Um, Both Ellen Olenska and Edith Wharton had a husband who seized their fortune and spent it on mistresses. Um, In the novel, one of the reasons Olenska has returned to New York is because her husband um, uh, has embezzled her money and was also notoriously unfaithful. That that description also fits Edith's husband, Teddy, to a T. He behaved very badly. He embezzled about... Uh, over fifty thousand dollars of her money, which would be about one and a half million dollars today, and speculated poorly in the stock market, and also purchased a house in Boston to house a mistress. Um, and both in the novel and Wharton in real life, ultimately they leave their husbands and live alone in Paris in apartments near um, near the Place des Invalides, and um, they both entertain a steady stream of French high society. So. There are very many similarities between Wharton and Ellen Olenska. But there are also similarities between Wharton and Newland Archer. uh, And Newland represents who Wharton might have been had she remained in New York and not escaped uh, all of the bonds and um, shackles of of the expectations that her class put upon her. Um, The young Newland Archer and Edith are both undeniably similar. They both are very much a part of society. They attend the opera, they go to dinners and balls, they participate in all the activities of old New York. Um, um, And despite these useful resemblances, their adult lives take very different paths. And by the end of the novel, Newland is 57, and that's the same age Wharton was when she was writing it. And this Newland is very different from from Wharton, the author. Uh, He is no longer friends with writers. He no longer is dreaming of making art and intellectual conversation central to his life. Uh, instead, uh, just like everyone else in his social circle, he is governed by convention and he's following tradition. And in the last pages of the novel, as he reflects back on his life, he realizes that he has sunk deep into a rut. And Wharton, on the other hand, uh, avoided all of these ruts because her insatiable curiosity never left her, and um, and she. At the end of her life is in Paris and in the south of France where artists and literature and clever conversation are just a, a steady diet in her life. And uh, this is probably more information than you want, but I, I did want to spend a little moment on May, uh, the betrothed to Newland. And May is the woman that high society, included, including Wharton's husband, probably expected and wanted, wanted Wharton to be. And while for many years she was able to pull off the dual role, dual role of dutiful wife and bestselling author, eventually it became too much for her, and she abandons her wifely duties and leaves Teddy, and ultimately divorces him. So, *The Age of Innocence* I think is a novel that can be read many times, and each time you read it, you'll get something different. And one of the I think most brilliant aspects of the novel is that it is written from the perspective of the male Newland Archer. And as you read the novel, uh, perhaps the first time you read it, you don't realize it, but certainly on the second and third reading, you realize that he is a completely unreliable narrator, and um, and you can't. One, he 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 is misinterpreting signs and clues that the, that come before him as the plot unfolds, and in many ways is completely clueless. And and the women in the story who are portrayed in on the first read is perhaps lesser characters are actually the brilliant ones.
2: Well, speaking of brilliant, Susan, I feel like you're a brilliant professor of literature with that extraordinary answer. And it is enough. I think uh, listeners will agree to have us all go out and pick up uh, The Age of Innocence and read it either for the first time or for the second or third time, as you pointed out. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break.
0: This is Amy Brown from 4 Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually,
3: come.
2: Let's talk about the Mount a little bit, uh, where you spent so much of your time. Uh, Wharton designed and built it in 1902 for people who haven't been there. And I have recently been there uh, for the second time. And it is just a beautiful and remarkable place. Tell us how she made it happen, how it reflects who she is. Because just speaking for myself, when you walk through that front door, you walk into a world onto itself in terms of its beauty and everything it represents about her. She came to the Berkshires. Um, this
1: was probably uh, one good thing that her husband, Teddy, did. Is Teddy's family actually summered in the Berkshires, and that is how she came to, to, know, uh, uh, to know the Berkshires. Um, Wharton's family, watery, their, their, their summer place was in Newport. And while Wharton loved Newport as a child when she was free to play tennis or swim or sail or ride, once she was a young married woman, uh, the, again, the expectations of entertainment, uh, either being entertained or to entertain, proved too great for her. And, um, and she was, uh, all of her time that she had hoped to devote to writing was taken up with societal duties. And so, in 1901, she and Teddy decide to leave Newport, and Wharton comes to the Berkshires. Uh, They find a a beautiful 113-acre property, uh, which had been previously farmland, and they purchase it. We've got a wonderful photograph, a historic photograph of Teddy and Edith, and they were both huge dog lovers. And they're like three little dogs, and they're all standing on this rocky mound, Pointing uh, as if this is their, they're they're telling the person who's taking the photograph, this is the place, this is what, where we are going to build our home. And um, Wharton had a huge interest in both architecture and landscape design. And so she was uh, involved heavily in every aspect of the construction of the estate. And um, she intended that it would be a home that would meet all of her needs, both as a designer, as a gardener, as a hostess and most importantly, as a writer. So one of the most distinguishing features of the mount, there are are a few. One is that it is built far, far away from the roads. It's not even visible from any of the main highways or arteries. And that's because she really wanted it to be a retreat. It was not built to be a symbol of her wealth, though at that point, she was a very successful writer and her wealth was considerable. It was meant to be a place where she could retire from society, should she choose. It was also it's also a very it's a very beautiful and elegant house. But in terms of um, the number of people that it will accommodate, it's actually quite small. The dining room is uh, designed to seat six, and there are only two guest bedrooms. And so it was it, again, its primary purpose was to entertain at most your most intimate friends, and then also to give her a place where she could create. Um, she was very proud of the mount. Um, she there's a an, uh, a 1905 1906 letter that she writes to her lover Morton Fullerton, where she actually says, and I know this line by heart, but "quote decidedly I'm a better landscape gardener than novelist, and this place, every line of which is my own work, far surpasses the House of Mirth." And uh, just to, to Put that in context. The House of Mirth was um, the runaway bestseller of 1905. Uh, it was published, I think, in October, and in the remaining months of the year, it uh, outsold by enormous amounts every other novel that had been published that that in that in that year. So um, the Whartons, unfortunately, only lived at the Mount for ten years, uh, but it was a transformational decade for for Edith. Um, she had many professional triumphs and much emotional turmoil. Um, uh, it was during her period at the Mount that um, Teddy's mental instability really began to take hold. I think um, it was probably not easy for Teddy to be Edith Wharton's husband. Uh, he was not her intellectual peer. And um, and he had really not a lot to bring to the table, and as she grew more and more financially successful and um, independent I think he um, he began to resent it and uh, and that resentment began to uh, manifest itself in in ways that were not not healthy or good for either either of
2: them well she clearly thought seriously and that description that you you posed that comparative with house of mirth uh, to her own house uh, she cared about interior design clearly she cared about gardens she cared about decorations, she wrote about it. How would you describe her design philosophy if she had one? Oh, she certainly had a design philosophy.
1: And um, what she was advocating for, and it is the basic premise of her book, The Decoration of Houses, is a return to what she termed as the classical style uh, that you would find in Europe, characterized by symmetry, balance, and proportion. Those were the three the three main um tenets of any good design and um you had to pay close attention to how houses and gardens were to be used um she grew up in the victorian era uh and then the i would say the victorian era was characterized by houses that were over upholstered over draperied full of bric-a-brac and um and they also gave rise to what were sort of very ostentatious properties of the newly rich um, who built their houses to basically show and flaunt uh, their wealth. Um, and they, the, the big houses of the Gilded Era, the Berkshire cottages, I would say many of them uh, put a greater value in how showy they were versus how functional they were. And for Wharton, um, she was always very keenly attuned to the fact that houses are, in fact, first and foremost, meant to be lived in. Um she also felt that the house, the gardens, and the landscape should all be in harmony and that the transition between one and the other should be gradual. And But the harmonious component was not unlike um, a great work of art. And that is how she viewed uh, house and landscape design.
2: Hmm. Beautifully said. Now, you've had a major impact on the mountain in many ways, but one was certainly to retire its debt, which was no small feat. Um, in 2015. Uh, That was really extraordinary. Um, And you have managed to get some of Wharton's books returned to the library where they have their special place now. Tell us about that and why those books are so important. Oh, another wonderful question, Milan. Thank you. Um, The books,
1: yes, we have all that, what we believe to be um, perhaps not all, but the majority of what remains of Wharton's own original library. It's about 2,700 volumes. Um, we know that her, her full library was actually far more extensive than that. Um, she bequeathed it to two godsons. Uh, half of it ended up, uh, being destroyed in the war as it was waiting on the docks of London, uh, to be shipped to America for safety. But the other half, um, was uh, bequeathed to the son of Sir Kenneth Clark, the great historian. And they sort of languished and were protected uh, throughout the war in Saltwood Castle, which was out in the English countryside, and eventually ended up in the hands of a bookseller who became so fascinated with Edith Wharton that he spent probably 30 years of his life trying to continue to collect uh, what I would call the orphans and the, the... the strays that had been perhaps loaned by the Clarks out to other people. And uh, tr- he tried, he was very keen on making sure that the collection remained together as a whole. And the reason why he was so keen on that is because Wharton was a very active reader. And um, she, she annotated her books. She wrote notes in the flyleafs. she, Uh, underscored she used exclamations when you look at all of these markings it's like you are reading the book with her alongside her and it just tells you so much Um, she also uh the, the books many of the books are gifts from some of her closest friends uh for example teddy roosevelt and henry james and their intimate inscriptions as they gifted books to her uh, tells us a lot or gives us insights into the nature of their relationship, for example, how much humor uh, w- there was in in the kind of repartee that Wharton had, particularly with Henry James but also also with Teddy roosevelt um, and uh and so we really consider the books as um as the heart and soul of the property, and they also attest to the incredible. Breadth of Wharton's curiosity, um, in addition to literature, gardening, travel, um, there are numerous volumes on history, philosophy, religion, and science. Um, and it and it the, the breadth of the the books. I mean, we have books that she was given as a child that were given to her by her brothers, um, uh, you know, for Christmas, and then. We also have the books that she was reading, you know, within months of her death. And we know that because the publication date of the book was, you know, just two months prior to her, prior to her dying. And um, so it's been a, just an incredible tool in, dupe, in deepening our understanding of what, um, I, I would say her personality practically springs from the pages. And uh, and so it's just a, a wealth of information for the next generation of scholars and and storytellers, and we actually um, are regularly welcoming scholars who come to peer through the pages to see what what little uh, tidbits of information they might be able to glean.
2: It's really a very, very special part of the house. To see those annotated books and and to read the inscriptions, you do feel uh, like you're um, learning something that nobody else knows. It's really an insight into her. Uh, So, Congratulations on being able to get those books returned so that they could be at the Mount today. Uh, We are closely running out of time, and I I wanted to just uh, ask about one of the aspects of her life that's really less well-known. You alluded uh, several times uh, to her years in France. She lived there before World War I. She worked with the Red Cross during the war. She was even awarded the French Legion of Honor. Um, what was it about her devotion to France and uh, what it meant to her? Well, um, I think the love of France probably was
1: seated deeply in Edith when she was a child. So from the age of four to 10, uh, the Whartons spent most of their time traveling around Europe. Uh, and uh, she spent a great deal of time living in France as well as Germany and Italy. And she was fluent in French, and she was uh, deeply uh, engrossed in, and I would say influenced by French literature. So her library includes all the French greats, from Balzac to Voltaire, um, and so a huge impact there. Um, but I think it, it actually was probably um, World War I that really cemented her love for france and the french people um when the war breaks out she's actually in england looking at a property uh to possibly purchase and um there's some just really beautiful letters that talks about the anguish that she feels because she's unable to return because the the borders have closed and uh and it takes her uh, several weeks or maybe even several months before she's actually admitted back into the country and uh, she's just absolutely horrified by the um by the carnage and the and the devastation and um and then of course 1914 to 1918 she throws herself into humanitarian work on the part of france and the french and i think um i I think that's where her, her her love and her loyalties shifted and i i also think she never was that comfortable in the united states she she hated um she hated New York. She thought it was deplorably ugly. She did not feel accepted in Boston where she was being too fashionable. And she just loved the layout and the architecture and the sensibilities of the European cities, particularly Paris. And and so I think that's why. um, And then of course, towards the, I would say in the latter third of her life after the war, Um, she is continuing to write prolifically, but, um, I would say her first passion at that point becomes gardening and she purchases this amazing ancient wreck of a chateau on the Riviera and, um, purchases an entire hillside that goes with it and, and then throws herself into, into gardening and is, um, uh, credited in part with actually um, uh, creating the, the Mediterranean garden. Um, the English were starting to settle on the South of France. The French had no particular interest in, in gardens, but the English had a passion for it. And so she developed a small group of very close friends and they, they took the Mediterranean garden to to whole, they, they, they really put it on the map as, as a, as a, as a, as a genre of gardening. Um, so that, that, that also, I think, was important. And I believe she felt that France, um, where women and men engaged in society and conversation together, uh, that France had more respect for women and educated them actually better than America did. And so I think she felt in some ways that the French were, in, 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 were superior to the, uh, to the Americans in terms of how they organized and structured their lives.
2: Well, I regret that uh, we can't keep talking about Edith for hours more because she is both a fascinating figure and you are um, wonderfully descriptive in giving us insights into who she was and what she did. Uh, But before we let you go, Susan, how can listeners visit the Mount? Um, Do you have ongoing events and programs? And if you do, how can we learn about them? There are numerous ways you can experience the site. You can take a, a guided tour with a
1: person, you can take a self-guided tour, or you can um, or you can take an audio tour. Um, we have a beautiful cafe uh, on our terrace, which uh, you can enjoy sort of uh, good food and, and uh, incredible views. And then we also have just. Um, a, an ongoing roster of programs uh, that include um, a sculpture exhibit across about fifty acres, thirty large-scale contemporary pieces. We have concerts uh, regularly. Um, we often have theatrical performances. But it, again, the best way to um, to figure out and plan your trip is to visit our website and to sign up for our e-newsletter. And you could also follow us on social media. Uh, we have a hashtag at the Mount Lenox.
2: Well, thank you so much, Susan Whistler, for this just wonderful conversation. Your great ability to enable us to come to know uh, and be much smarter about that great literary giant, uh, Edith Wharton. And thank you, too, for what uh, you've been doing over the last many years uh, to make the Mount come alive and be that very special place that it is. It's so great to have had you with us today. Thank you. Milan, thank you. This has been lots of fun and I I hope I haven't talked too much. No, it's been terrific. Thank you so much. I learned so much about Edith Wharton in talking to the remarkable Susan Whistler. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, Edith Wharton remains popular today, more than 100 years after publication of her most famous novels. And no wonder... She writes about women trying to find their way in a culture that wants to constrain them and about the expectations our friends and family place on all of us. Her novels are compelling and timeless. Second, it's also worth looking at the other side of Edith Wharton, the house and garden designer. Check out a copy of her 1897 design manual, The Decoration of Houses for guidelines that never go out of style. Finally, if you're on the East Coast, try to visit the Mount, the magnificent estate that Edith Wharton built in Lenox, Massachusetts. Besides touring the house and grounds, you can enjoy nature walks, lectures, sculpture exhibits, music, and even lunch on the beautiful terrace. To learn more, visit edithwharton.org. Tune in next time to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner p Have a great day. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs)